0: Welcome to the Agents of Innovation Podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. All right, well, welcome back to the Agents of Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I've got a really great guy here, uh, Brian Merchant. We're here at the Miami Book Fair. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Francisco. Well, Brian is the technology columnist at the LA Times. He's also founder of Vice's speculative fiction outlet, Terraform, and he's the author of this great new book sitting right here, uh, Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech. That's right. So, Brian, we got you on the Agents of
1: Innovation podcast, but are you just a Luddite? (laughs) (laughs) I am a Luddite, but that does not mean that I am anti-innovation. Uh, and Luddites are uh, they're misunderstood, let's put it that way they've been mischaracterized for a long time uh, in this way that most people think that they hate technology or a Luddite somebody who doesn't get it or doesn't get technology or never got an iPhone or that kind of thing but that is not the case. The real Luddites were, um, Where workers were technologists themselves. They use machinery. They are quite good at machinery. And they uh, saw the Industrial Revolution booming, and they saw factory owners using specific machines to try to move work into factories, to try to cut their pay to try to uh, sort of degrade their working conditions, basically, to try to replace them not with machines, but with children and migrant workers, uh, people that they could pay less. So the real Luddites said, "Uh, I don't think so. And they ended up forming this big rebellion and kind of taking on the factory owners who wouldn't negotiate with them um, and smashing tactically just the machines that were taking their jobs. So they were not against machinery. They were against exploitation and against poverty.
0: Interesting. So this was uh, what time period historically?
1: Yeah, this was. You know, you you could call it the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So the late seventeen hundreds to the early eighteen hundreds was when when uh, what we would call today entrepreneurs started using machine to organize labor into little factories, some larger factories. Um, And it's when that kind of uh, mode of work started to take root that the cloth workers started uh, protesting and and trying to find ways to to, um, uh, adapt to that or resist that. And then in 1811 to 1813 is when kind of the actual sort of really explosive uh, Luddite rebellion takes place. So,
0: you know, interesting. I kind of want to see if you could help me and our audience understand this because a lot of times, uh, you know, I teach some economics classes now and then. I also head up the Economic Club of Miami uh, on top of other things. So I I wanted to just get, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to, especially young people about the broad view of economics. I mean, I like to remind people that probably 95% of like human history, even like prehistory, you know, human beings. Uh, we were just, you know, hunters and gatherers, right, uh-huh. for so long, and then we we started, you know, we started farming about twelve thousand years ago. That started appearing all over the the planet, and then it was only just a few hundred years ago that we hit this industrial revolution, and we had this explosion of of you know really uh, innovation, comforts, all the things that we think about in our modern day and age. Mm-hmm. But I also like to remind people that that was a big shift in the way of the way of living right mm-hmm. like living uh so tell us a little bit about that shift uh, i mean was it what what was that like what were the benefits of that shift and what were some of the challenges that society faced
1: yeah it's a great question um and it's probably the reason that the that the, the sort of the luddites became as animated and as sort of popular and powerful as they, they became for for a brief time, um, was 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 because of that. It was less the specific machinery that was being used, but it, but this shift that it was driving. So for most of the sixteen um, hundreds and seventeen hundreds, uh, most of most of India. Uh, <clears throat> most of England's cloth workers sort of worked in what's called the domestic system. And that's you're either working at home, in a cottage, or a small shop. Uh, you know, you're setting your own uh, hours for the most part. You have a lot of autonomy. Um, you're working with your family. If you're a weaver, for example, uh, and, and and besides farmers, besides the agrarian base, this is the largest uh, sort of base of workers in all of England. So it's a bit it's a lot of a lot of people doing this domestic system, working at home, singing songs, autonomy, you know, you you have a pretty nice life. You're not always prosperous. You're not necessarily rich, but you have a lot of control and agency over your life. So this shift to uh to to factory production where you all of a sudden have an overseer or a boss or a manager somebody that's going to tell you you know where you have to sit when you can leave how long you have to work it's the conditions are not great in this factory that if to a lot of people that's just sort of intrinsically repellent so people hated this idea they had a term for it they didn't want to stand at their command which is sort of sacrificing their autonomy and all, and their dignity in a lot of cases and not to mention making less money um often uh to go work in these factories so they were resisting that too and while there are benefits as you mentioned clearly to mass production you know you can get cheaper goods um you know, more people can can afford things. Um, there are also downsides to the mass production output too. It, it, especially in the early days, the the quality of the goods that were being produced was a lot worse. The cloth garments would fall apart faster, um, and this was also another thing that the Luddites protested. They because the reputation of their goods uh, and th- therefore the amount that they could charge for their products was diminished because they're competing with these um, automated factories. So, and then from there it gets even worse. We most of us probably know the story of the Industrial Revolution, how it was largely powered by uh, child labor, precarious labor, uh, people actually physically shrinking. From working in such uh, such harsh conditions, um, and you know it's a little product of the way that this, uh, that technological development took place really. Um, You know, there was a lot of pollution. There was a lot of factorization. um, There was a lot of sickness, a lot of maltreatment and a lot of, and a lot of suffering for those periods that, uh, that, that people had to endure before workers movements like the Luddites kind of clawed back some protections, clawed back some sense of, uh, uh, of uh, equality where they could share some of the benefits that uh, the factory. Owners were getting from from production.
0: So when uh, when when we go back to that period, a lot of times again, when I'm teaching economics, uh, you know, we Adam Smith is a, a central figure in even modern economics today, and he 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 arose you know in the late 1700s uh-huh. to really kind of tell people what uh, really kind of study what what was going on, right? Uh, you know, the invisible hand. He's talking about uh, all sorts of uh, you know the way the way wealth is created, all these things. But it's basically right as he's kind of doing that is that the industrial revolution is starting mm-hmm. right and and then we get about a century after adam smith we get Karl marx um and tell me i mean in terms of the uh, the origins of the 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 rebellion here of the luddites yeah uh, does does basically uh does socialism and communism does that come as part of the pushback against the industrial revolution, in terms of those conditions that people saw, did that
1: is that is that kind where that of, kind of kind of interestingly, uh, Karl Marx did not uh, did not have any respect for the Luddites because you know he thought. Uh, that what had to happen was you had to have all this technological advancement, and that capitalism was very good at marshaling resources, even if it was creating mass immiseration at the time. That it would uh, that it would sort of be this motor for for technological innovation, and and once you had systems that were capable of um, you know creating, producing, and and creating and distributing goods, then you could you know seize the means of production and then distribute it more equitably. So he, and there's some evidence that he was kind of coming, you know, beginning to abandon that idea later in his, his career that maybe that sort of techno optimism was, um, was not the, the, was not likely to to either to happen or that way of the revolution or whatever, because, you know, when we see the ways that his writings were put into practice, it wasn't, mature, technologically advanced societies, you know, taking uh, the back of the factories. It was, uh, you know, it was poorer countries and, and, and peasants' revolts and, you know, in Russia um, and stuff like that. But Adam Smith also, you can, there's actually, I would love to see, uh, you know, some more uh, work, uh, Some and maybe it's out there and I just haven't found it, but looking at the link between Adam Smith's teachings And um, and and sort of this and and its relationship specifically to how factory owners, um, you know, navigated those early days of the Industrial Revolution, because there's a sense in a lot of the letters and the communications that I that I read as part of the archival research for the book that was um, that a lot of the factory owners were kind of emboldened by um, by Smith and saying, "Well, you know, it, this is a this is a virtue. So even if you know if it's causing suffering in the short term, you know, it's it's in the name of of, uh, of a freer market." And um, a lot of the uh, parliamentarians shot down the idea of intervening in trade in any way. Even you know for things like a minimum wage or trying to uh, subdue the, the the suffering that was causing when you had this sort of explosion of inequality in the early 1800s, um, and they would cite Adam Smith. So you know there's a sense that he's also kind of a motor for for the for these early we, people hadn't really negotiated uh, you know just how free of a market would be a good thing or would it, and you know I think there was you know, there are some people who were really on board and sort of believe that this would be a good thing for humanity. I think there's some other people who are using it as a bit of a shield or an excuse to kind of, you know, uh, just kind of hit the gas on automation and throw people out of work and have a, have an excuse to do it. So it's some mix of all of that. Um, but it is really interesting to look at because a lot of the working people, they hated Dr. Smith to the extent they called it Dr. A. Smith. <laughs> they, they, they said, they thought that um, um, even there's a lot of conservatives that, that, that didn't that didn't like him either it was a really interesting political formulation at the time
0: yeah okay so um, I mean what what we've seen as well I mean we've seen a lot of wealth creation a lot of innovation in the last few hundred years but it seems in the last 20 30 40 years you know I don't know you where you want to go back you can go back to three days ago right <laughs> we're talking on the edge of uh, the open AI kind of disaster yeah. here that's that's unfolding right uh, but uh, you know, your book talking about the rebellion against big tech today as well, right? So I, uh, my understanding, tell me a little bit about the book in in terms of, is it uh, kind of giving us a history of a previous rebellion and maybe talking about what's going on today?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's not, you know, there is no sort of, there is no any Luddite rebellion uh, in in the terms that happened in the 1800s going on right now, but there are you know some some green shoots right that I think should worry you know everybody from the from tech executives to uh, to, to working class people using using gig app um, algorithms and uh, you know working at Amazon factories because um, we we're, we're seeing some some of the same trend lines um taking root uh that's that you know we have this pretty immense gulf of inequality a lot of people feel like they aren't being represented they aren't um you know being being treated fairly that the the social contract in some ways has been torn up for them um just like the you know the pre-luddite cloth workers felt um we have uh huge concentration of of power in Silicon Valley and tech sectors uh, where, where a lot of this development is happening so there's a sense that a handful of folks are calling the shots and that there's not a lot of room or ability to push back you know you think about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the unusual sort of corporate governance structure that he has where, you know, you can't throw him out. He could do whatever he wants with, you know, with Facebook and, and you know, it's it's a kind of a fundamentally undemocratic structure. So there's a lot of these undercurrents going on right now, a lot of tensions um and especially people who feel like their work is threatened by the new AI systems, people who feel like their livelihoods have been eroded by uh gig work apps that you know a lot of people feel like they gave up, you know, a certain kind of job for a more precarious one, whether that's Uber, Lyft, TaskRab, or whatever and then have seen their wages fall. So there's a lot of these uh you know stressors you could call where you know if things aren't going to explode into a Luddite rebellion right now but you could imagine a scenario where if we're plunged into a recession and companies keep automating or keep trying to, transition more work to ai see what they can get chat gpt to do instead of their workforces um you know and 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 gig work continues to be difficult and um conditions at amazon are bad you could you could imagine something like this happening so yeah i look at sort of the efforts to organize amazon i look at some gig workers who have started uh coalitions to try to fight for more rights i look at um some of the, some some of the some some of the modern offshoots there, um, and it is a really interesting time because things could go any number of different ways. Yeah, so you
0: have you kind of mentioned a few things there. I think the stressors, there's a lot of stressors going on. So we could maybe debate, like maybe they did in the 1800s, about whether this is ultimately a, a ultimate good for humanity, yeah. right? I mean, maybe. More they called it, call it the
1: machinery question in the day. Yeah. Today, it's like, are the robots coming for our jobs and that kind of thing.
0: But, but whether yeah. you whatever side of that debate we fall on, um, I think that what I think we can almost all agree on is uh, the, there's stressors, right, when you're when you're shifting to a to a new kind of economy. Um, so first of all, you have a lot of people right now, middle age to retirement age in that in that period who they may lose their job and be totally irrelevant in the current workforce. Because they've had a, a career in something, maybe even worked for the same company for a long time, yeah. and now they don't know where to go. And they're, you know, they're having to take maybe a very low-wage job just to yeah. make ends meet. Then you've got people maybe coming out of college right now. And I know a lot of young people coming out of college. Anybody uh, really younger than me <laughs> uh, uh, has basically been sold the idea. And I don't think anybody was necessarily lying to them. It was just what the case was that get a college degree uh, you'll get a good paying job there's you know there's a career waiting for you they come out there's not a career waiting for them the job pay is not very high uh, cost of living is going up and they can't make ends meet. You see a lot of people, especially in their 20s, living with their parents yep. if they're lucky, if they've got parents to live with. So there's um, there's a lot of stressors. Yes. So
1: so what uh, w- what can we do about it? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, again, there's a there's a wide range of solutions um, that are that are being talked about um, a lot, and they they range from. You know, things like UBI, the universal basic income idea, um, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, to strengthening social programs in general. To, um, yeah, trying to give, uh, you know, those workers more say, again, more like democratic input into how AI may or may not be um, integrated into their workplaces. Um, and, and we saw that kind of as one of the interesting outcomes of the WGA strike where a huge sticking point was the studios kind of wanted to reserve the right to use AI to generate a script. Mm-hmm. Um, and the writers knew that if that happened, what they were going to do is and they were going to be asked to call, come in and rewrite it, which may be a similar amount of work, but they were going to get paid less and lose the rights to the to the property and the right to make residuals. So after that, you know, the, one of the outcomes of their coming out uh, victorious, I guess you could say, of their strike, uh, was that they, you know, that that's off the table. Now the studio cannot generate original scripts with AI. So they can use AI if they, you know, to experiment, on, but it has to be on, on, on their side. Um, so that's one interesting negotiation that I've seen kind of, come out of this but yeah it is this really interesting time and I think those two things that you identified are the two really worrisome areas where people um, you know because my again my gut is that uh, is that AI is not quite ready to do a lot of these jobs even if it eventually will be but then some overeager managers are gonna you know sort of try to you know jump the gun and maybe make some labor savings by by adopting a, a, an enterprise tier ai program or something to have it do, uh, you know, copywriting or what the accounts payable was doing or something like that. And then kind of going, oh, shoot, maybe we couldn't get rid of all those people, maybe. But then, yeah, the the older employees might be out of luck um, because that's unlikely that they'll be hired back. Um, And then, like, yeah, Ted Chang has a great uh, piece in The New Yorker where he talks about one of the things that we do stand to lose from AI is all that, I guess you'd call it entry level or journeyman, Mm -hmm. you know, to your, like, where... A lot of writers, you know, it, it might not be their dream job to work as a, you know, a copywriter, uh, a junior copywriter at an advertising firm, but that's how they're paying the bills as they're learning the trade. Um, if ChatGPT can do that, um, then they lose that, not only do they lose that source of income, but they lose that opportunity to learn the trade too. And we can see, and that's probably what, you know, generative AI can do is a lot of this sort of, you know, entry level stuff, you know, writing captions, making, you know, basic graph design for, uh, you know, a, a corporate uh, presentation slideshow or something. Things that artists and illustrators and copywriters and even, you know, we're seeing coders, you know, entry level coders uh, who are, you know, co- co-pilot can automate some basic code. So coders aren't going to have the same opportunity to learn some of that journeyman stuff. So that is how we navigate that will be really interesting. And I think, I, I you know, I don't have a a, a great answer other than, yeah, I think we do need to have stronger um, social institutions so people aren't just kind of completely out in the cold if they get... Uh, automated our way and, and we have more and more attention some of that's training I am always skeptical about job retraining programs because it's a favorite solution and kind of the the academic literature kind of says that it doesn't really work all that well um, especially if it's a job as you've said you've sunk a lot of your identity into it's you know you can have a training course on how to do something else but you've lost a lot when you've lost that job so yeah I think just it's good that we're talking about it it's good that it's on folks radar and again as you said wherever you fall in the political political spectrum. I think it's a uh, pretty inarguable that these uh, that these um, inflection points are are coming and we're going to see these tensions and and we do have to figure out humane and smart ways to deal with them. You know, I think uh, a real I think I, th- I think what you're talking about though the those entry level positions. I mean, you were just
0: talking about writers and stuff. I'm thinking about going to McDonald's yeah. and seeing the automated machines yeah. and um, and that's a person now that can't get that job maybe Maybe it was a minimum wage job, but the minimum wage job was maybe a first step. And now that first step might be a machine. So that's really interesting. I didn't think about that and the implications it could have for so many people getting into the workforce and
1: moving up. Same thing. Yeah, same exact thing. That's exactly right. Um, You already see them. You already go into McDonald's and you see four Mm -hmm. of those kiosks or whatever where there used to be, you know, four cashiers. Now there's one cashier and and, and four robots. Um, It's, you know, increasingly at least... In LA, where I live, there's more. Um, you know, there's more ordering kiosks, even at you know non-chain restaurants. They'll just buy the um, buy a little uh, a sort of tablet-looking thing that you order there, and you know, instead of uh, talking to a wait staff. So there's service jobs that stand to be automated. Las Vegas is grappling with this. A lot of the old um, jobs that used to you know be pretty good, uh, you know. Uh, jobs working for casinos uh you know dealers and uh and roulette table hosts uh even those are being automated by sort of cgi avatars and that's another interesting Mm. case where like We'll have to see. Like, do people want that? Like, I went to Las Vegas for the first time in a while, and I was kind of blown away. I'm like, I don't want to sit at a table with a CGI avatar. Like, the fun of Vegas is you're in there. And it's like, but maybe that, you know, maybe that can change. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe, Maybe that's just a... A sign of the times, too. I kind of feel like I can look at a CGI avatar and gamble on my phone if I want to do that. But um, and then there's something fun about uh, yeah having a real human you know, being, right. right? Yeah, and I think we'll navigate those too. They might bring some of those back. And another funny thing is they automate <laughs> those real human beings those... bring some of those <laughs> well, back. No, yeah <laughs> that's some of those old humans, the old technology
0: <laughs> humans. Yeah. Well, you know, you're so you're the technology writer at the L.A. Times. Yeah. Uh, how did you get into a role like that? And uh, what do you? I mean. Do you spend your time uh, praising any technology, or just uh, yeah, or just looking at it? I mean, what are the things you're really kind of focused on?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like I've been pretty critical for the last couple, just because I've been in in this mode. I do feel like there, I do have um, you know an opportunity to uh, you know to to sort of dig into th- to, to some of these things that a lot of folks aren't necessarily looking at. So I do kind of feel. You know, when I see something that I that that could be improved, uh, that that I that I say something, and I find that that takes up a lot of my time. But no, I am not in any way anti-technology. <laughs> I you know I have I have the I I have the, the I've got the the, the meta the Meta Quest goggles at home that I that I check out. I think there's interesting things going on in uh you know in AR and and VR. I think that there's really interesting stuff going on in inter- entertainment tech. I think that there's 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 interesting stuff going on anywhere. AI, AI can do a lot of really promising stuff. Um, but the question isn't again as I think the Luddites, the true Luddites would say, it's not about whether uh, the technology itself is good or bad, but it's the context in which it's used and how and how it's being used and against whom perhaps. And I think You know, I I think VR and AR would excite me a lot more if it wasn't, you know, coming from Facebook, a company that has not had the best sort of corporate governance record over the last 10 years and by this uh CEO who's not uh you know not not super accountable and has in some ways kind of a grim vision for for uh you know monetizing the metaverse and and so forth but they but these things can be amazing the the experiences can be amazing they can actually have like real liberatory potential i know people who don't feel comfortable in social spaces you know have f- formed groups in in vr where they can you know present themselves in a way that feels more true than they can in their daily lives and there's you know there's that happened on social media that happened across the spectrum so there's a lot of great stuff about technology it's just i think about you know trying to right the ship when it's uh, when 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 too many of the decisions and it's being shaped too much by just a handful of people again like it was 200 years ago yeah so uh last question or two here
0: um one, I mean, how do you? I mean, as a technology writer, um, you know, from your perspective, what what are what are the exciting things happening? How I mean, how do you envision the future going? I mean, if you were to wish for it, you know, yeah. in terms of knowing knowing uh, the technological capabilities we now have, whether it's going to space, whether it's going to, to the depths of the ocean, you know, whether it's uh, you know communicating faster, you know, how, how do you, what, what do you think the ways that technology could be used a, a lot better?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think all of those are, those. all of those are really interesting and, and great, great things to aspire to. You know, I'd love to see more space travel and more space exploration than than, than we're doing currently. I don't know about inhabiting Mars. That seems uh, tough, but, uh, <laughs> but it, I wouldn't close my mind to it. Um, again, like, I just think that, it's more the things that I would change are, are more about sort of like the social and economic dimensions. I just think that we have this model and we have for again for two hundred years where uh, where we have just a handful of folks who have access to the, the the resources and the power and influence necessary to make a big technological change, and I right now and sort of what this book is about is thinking about what you know what would it look like if if things were structured differently. What if it wasn't? What if you know building a technology uh, that that could be appealing to the masses wasn't reliant on getting hundreds of millions of dollars of VC money? I think some of the most interesting tech work is being done in makers labs, being done sort of casually in uh, you know in, in cities where there's a high density of tech workers. Tech workers making making co-ops and things like that. Sometimes that can be an alternative to user uh, to, to to Uber, where people can keep more of the money rather than sending half of it to 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 Uber. Um, you know, sort of taking back some of the. Um, the, the 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 economic power and using technology that way, you know, like I said, I I'm really curious to see what Apple's vision for uh you know the Vision Quest Pro what that looks like. I mean, I they do amazing things with technology. I I, I can't wait to honestly see what uh, what those experiences feel like. Again, do I wish it was coming in a from a different context where maybe they weren't going to try to you know silo it and every, they're going to take thirty percent from every app or th- everything you buy, making it tougher for independent developers and blah 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 blah. Yeah, I wish that it was a little bit different, but the technology could be really cool. So it's so yeah. Let me get you, so so
0: in in a sense it's. We should, we should maybe maybe be excited by the technology. Maybe, maybe there are concerns about AI and maybe some moral concerns and, yeah. and some hu- you know, humanistic type of concerns. Yeah. But in terms of the technology, it's something we can be excited about. It's more the, the social and economic structure. And in a sense, it seems like we're, while we're on this cusp of this amazing like innovation happening, it's just being controlled by very few people.
1: Yeah, that, 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 yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. Look at so Midjourney and OpenAI and the the and Stable Diffusion. These big, jet, did they do any kind of outreach to the artistic communities, the illustrators, uh, the uh, authors' guilds, the all these. who who their work stood to impact in a very big way before they unleashed their products. Or did they have any sort of dialogue beforehand? No. Because, and that's not necessarily their fault. This is the model that has been inculcated into all of us and is the norm and and, and the last sort of generations uh, of precedent has been set that way. But we end up in this situation where they've made millions of people extremely upset, extremely anxious, they've caused this big disruption, and now now, as much as we're focusing on how cool the technology is, some of that's overshadowed by class action lawsuits, by people worried that they can't earn a living. Um, so the question is, how do we bridge this gap? How do we develop the technology in the first place in a way that gives more people more say over how it's going to affect them? And again, I don't really have all the great you know, answers for that. But again, it does seem to be that a few you know, people made these decisions that are now uh, affecting millions of other people. Um, and that has been kind of the case for, you know, the last generation, at least, of, of, of technological development, where sometimes it works out for the better, you could argue. You know, Google is, I think everybody think, is, is, is happy we have Google in our pockets that we can find information at our fingertips. That's great. Um, but, if, you know, something like Facebook is a lot more, you know, it's done a lot of damage to the world and, you know, fostering toxicity and misinformation and some pretty bad stuff abroad where it's, you know, regulated and looked at even less. Um, So we, you know, we didn't, but we have to deal with it. We have to fight basically a rear guard action against the things that aren't so great about it. So how do we improve... This process. How do we? How do we give? You know. How do we give more people more access to the to, to the to the to the decision making process to the technologies themselves? Um, uh, yes, yeah, so I think that there's, there's 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 a lot a lot of progress we can make there. And yeah, because I am I am excited about a lot of these technologies. You know, some of some fellow tech critics may may disagree, but that's where I venture. I am a technology columnist. I think technology can do great and wonderful things for people, um, but it can also when put Put in, in in the hands of, uh, of of the wrong folks, it can also do immense harms. So um, would you
0: would you say uh, maybe in some ways decentralizing the power and and in a sense the the corporate power uh, like obviously like say a Facebook having all these decisions that are made, uh, but also um, maybe decentralizing the epicenter like we talk a lot about silicon valley well we're sitting here in miami yeah and yeah. a few years ago some people started saying maybe miami will be the next silicon valley maybe it's austin texas maybe it's nashville yeah. you know whatever but i what i think interesting i don't know if you have any commentary on the way that people are now moving and spreading out to different cities and on top of that you know i've spent some time in latin america and i've seen a lot of digital nomads Whether it's in Medellin, Colombia, or you know other places, Mexico City, a lot of people are moving there. People can kind of move and work remotely from different places. Maybe there might be some uh, dismantling of just everything concentrated in Silicon Valley.
1: I think that'd be a I think that'd be a a great uh, a great step and and a big help. But I mean, we also see a reason because yeah, we see those headlines and oh maybe you know Austin and Miami, but then the locus tends to be pretty stubbornly stuck in in San Francisco and in, in Palo Alto and it's it you know, all the, the, the tech giants have more or less kept like the, the, the locus of power there. So yeah, finding ways to to decentralize I think helps. Finding um you know, I think yeah you know it's a hard, it's it's hard terrain to navigate, but a lot of innovators and a lot of uh, you know, young entrepreneurs that I've talked to have kind of quietly said, you know, it'd actually be pretty great if we could break up the big tech companies. But, you know, they don't want to say it out loud because they also hope that they'll be acquired by them, maybe. But it's also this huge stifling force um, on innovation, um, sort of sort of writ large. I still think there's people in, in doing great stuff, innovating incredible uh, new technologies. But when you have this market force that's as vast as say a google um or an apple you know there's two things that can happen one they can either try to see a competitor clone it and crush it or they can kind of absorb it into them and shelve it or you know best case scenario it you know it either is successful on its own or it it gets bought and then utilized um uh, to the satisfaction of those involved. I'd say that's probably the rarity these days. And there's a lot of people who really feel like, you know, that, that big tech, you know, kind of wields too much power, even from an innovation standpoint. It's a, it's stifling at this point. I just did a column about a, a medical device tech company called Massimo, Um who uh, the founder made a a technology called, uh, Joe Chiani, uh, called pulse oximetry tech. And it was, it takes um, measures of the readings of blood in your, uh, of oxygen in your blood rather. And uh, it, it's a, a life-saving device. It's marketed mostly to hospitals and to those who have ailments. Um, but when Apple was developing the Apple Watch, it, it, it took meetings because they wanted to have some health tech in there. They took meetings with Joe Kiani about 10 years ago. And Joe Kiani was like, wow, are they they might acquire my company or we could partner. I could get this tech out to the widest stage possible. That'd be great. But instead, it turns out, uh, Apple had no intention of uh, of acquiring or you know partnering instead it just started hiring his executives who've quickly started filing patents for Apple he he mm-hmm. felt that his technology had been stolen and he it's been 10 years worth of uh lawsuits um, and you know he actually the international trade court just ruled in his favor that said yeah Apple is putting your tech into their their uh their the, the Apple watch and if they don't take it out then we are gonna then we can we can seize it at the at the, at the site of import so that's you know it's just one of these cases where you know we could imagine so many better outcomes what if they had worked together and and you know had this productive partnership, and the tech was uh, w- was great, and everybody benefited. But instead, I think Apple found it more profitable because they know they can they have such uh, power that they can. Um you know, again, that's all alleged. That's just what the lawsuits found. But I thought it was a pretty striking example. So, yeah, I think you know, breaking up big tech, decentralizing that Silicon Valley sphere of influence, um, you know, getting uh, get it getting getting more eyeballs and more hands on on deck would would be a great thing. Yeah, no, I think I think you hit a lot of points there. I think innovation when it's
0: kind of a controlled. Or you know you you have to work with others to innovate and yeah. that would have been a great opportunity for those companies to cooperate yeah. and obviously you have a big company with a lot more money a lot more power and uh, kind of willing to take advantage I guess of this other company to seize its technology for its own purposes not really for the purposes of maybe uh, you know the broader humanity in a sense so uh, yeah. but lots of lots we can keep talking about Brian <laughs> I'm sure you'd be but uh, you, we, it's great to see you here at the Miami Book Fair. You got your book here, "Blood in the Machine: The Origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech." Not a short read, so you got a lot of information in that book. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but a it lot looks of bang for your buck. Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's yeah. been featured and reviewed in a lot of places, so uh, I know it's getting a lot of notoriety. And we'll continue to follow you. How do we follow you? Where's the best places?
1: Oh, I'm on X at BC Merchant, and also on Blue Sky and Mastodon. Um, I think of the same. BC Merchant. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having Great. me. Great, and you're also fun. in the LA Times. Right? I so, am the so. tech columnist of the LA Times, so you can read me there. We,
0: Great, and I'll put all this yeah. in the show notes. Uh, so thanks again uh, for being an agent of innovation and being on the Agents of Innovation podcast, uh, even if you're a little bit of a let <laughs>
1: <laughs> Happy to do it. Happy all to right, do it. thank you, sir. Yeah.